UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And a very warm welcome, as always, to Life Issues. The impact of George Floyd's death last year reverberated around the world, and so it should have. But for those of us who saw the anti-Nazi league protest the National Front in the 70s, who saw the removal from our tellies of racist comedians and their not-funny stereotypes or of singers blacking up to apparently entertain, and even saw the death of apartheid, the question arises, why is racism a battle that is still being fought? Why do Martin Luther King's words about little black boys and black girls being able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers remain still a dream for so many? And why did it never occur to so many of us who think we feel passionate about racism that statues of people who profited from the slave trade are offensive? I am a white middle-aged, middle-class man living in the UK. I am, in many ways, the definition of white privilege. So what can I do to ensure that I join hands with my black and brown brothers and sisters and make the world a better place, not least for my brown granddaughter? Especially in the church. Because after all, Jesus chose to come into this world as a man of colour, so surely we've got the right balance on this, haven't we? Well, the truth is, no matter how well I think I know this topic or feel able to stand on my 70s anti-racist warrior credentials, the only valid way for me to gain an understanding of racism is to hear the voices of those who have lived with the reality of racial discrimination and its history. So my guests this week are Krish Kandaya, author of Whistle Stop Tales Around the World in 10 Bible Stories, and Chinny MacDonald, author of God is Not a White Man. Guys, welcome to Life Issues. Hello, good to be here. Good to see you, Paul. I wonder if we can start, and we'll talk about your books in a little while and, and the, the different points that you're making in them, but I, I wonder if we could start by unpicking some of the reality around racism, perhaps by using that phrase, person of colour. It's become very popular in recent times, but I wonder if it's actually a helpful term. Does it improve things or does it just kind of perpetuate the let's lump the white, non-white division together into one place? So this brings up a, an interesting question, which is around language and words. And obviously we recognise that words mean different things in different decades and years and centuries. Um, so I totally recognize why people get kind of hung up and nervous about saying the wrong words. For me personally, um, the term people of color, uh, I find problematic because what it does is it puts forward this idea that um, white people are in effect the default human. Um, as one of my friends describes it. So whiteness is the norm um, and everything else is therefore colour and different. Now, having said that, I also recognise that there are lots of black and brown people all over the world who find um, almost the reclaiming of that term as people of colour, as ways to describe themselves as positive. Um, there are ways in which you can see the term colour as opposed to black or brown, something which is 
positive. So totally recognize that some people love the term uh, as long as they can use it themselves. Whereas I find it problematic because it centers whiteness. Yes. And it does sort of perpetuate that idea, Krish, of it being a, the world is a white versus non-white place. And the reality, of course, is that life is a lot more complex than that. It is more complicated, and I prefer person of colour to coloured person, about a million percent. <laughs> yeah. That feels like an offensive term. At least when people are using the word people of colour, they're trying to be careful. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and lots of people recognise that uh, colour is better than black and white. That's definitely true for my TV. So maybe we've made some kind of positive moves. I mean, it is fraught with difficulty language in this space. Uh, even the term race is a difficult one. Uh, because the idea of race is based on an evolutionary framework that, that someone thought that the different races were different stages of evolution. And obviously, Caucasian or white people were at the top and everyone else was somehow lesser. Uh, and so some people don't like talking about the word race. They preferred the word ethnicity, which seems to uh, have less to do with the colour of your skin and more to do with where you're from or where your ancestors are from or, you know, which nations you're connected with. So it, it is difficult. I, I think as Christians, we want to be really quick to listen and slow to speak. We want to uh, find out the words that are going to be helpful in a conversation. So often before we're going to have a conversation about this space, we'll, we'll try and agree what terms we want to use. I, I hosted a transatlantic summit last week on racial disparity, why black children wait the longest for adoption, uh, both in the US and the UK. And before we got started, we had an offline meeting with some of the key stakeholders in the conversation say, look, what, what is helpful language here? We, we're all on the same page. We want to do things well. How can we find some terms that are going to make this conversation easier? So uh, if you're not sure, ask, I would say. And is this separation of the world into white and not white, Chinny, is that really the issue or is that just the UK manifestation of something that occurs in different forms in different countries around the world? I think in, in many ways, humans tend towards um, carving themselves out as the powerful ones. And the situation that we're in now is that actually um, over a long, the long, longest period of history, um, white people have um, uh, identified themselves as the ones with the power. Um, and that has played out in all sorts of different ways, um, from economics to uh, the kind of global structures of how the world is run. Um, it's often about power. So in those contexts in which most of the people in a country are black or brown, and then you get kind of colorism and racism and that, that same kind of separation in order that, that some groups might have power. And um, that 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 is a that reflects the way that the UK does it. However, um, the problem in that context is that if a white person walks into that situation and um, within those countries where uh, the people are predominantly black and brown, it is in those spaces that the white person is still seen in that context as the one who is most powerful because there is this global narrative of whiteness as dominant in the global north and uh, Europe and America um, as in some ways holding power. So I mean, it is about power and you'll find um, discrimination and racism and prejudice in every single context um, in the world because of sin, which makes us want to uh, cause division 
keep some people out um, and keep ourselves in. But I don't think it is fair to say um, that every context has their their different issues when actually in, in even those issues and in even those contexts um whiteness is still dominant and seen as the one with power and that is a staggering thought krish that that you go to somewhere in the world where white is not the predominant color and yet it's still the case that the almost the cultural perspective globally is that a white person walking into that situation carries with them a an imagery that enables racist behaviour. I think there are lots of different factors, as as uh, Chenny mentioned, that we try to carve ourselves up. So even though I'm not a white person, when I'm in another context, um, particularly let's say one involving poverty. As a Westerner, I'm given privilege in that context, maybe because of my language, uh, maybe because of my education, maybe because of where I was born. So racism is one facet of the way in which we unhelpfully, sinfully divided the world. I remember when I was at secondary school, I went to an all-boys comprehensive school in Brighton. It was so illustrious, they bulldozed it down. So I, I have no pedigree when it comes to education. But it was weird, right? We're all in the same class at school and the tall boy, we called him lanky. Um, the short boy was called midget. That was an offensive term then. It still is now. Um, I was Paki because obviously, even though I've never been to Pakistan or have no ancestry in Pakistan, they assumed I was Pakistani. Uh, and there was a boy that had a nervous tick. We called him Twitcher. So we, we picked on the things that differentiated one from one another. And it was a power play. You were trying to say, you weren't normal, you're not good enough. And, and we emphasized the things that made us different rather than the things that made us the same. We we're all boys in a really dodgy school, all the same age, all facing the same kind of problems in life. So that, that is a tendency within our uh, psyche, within our hearts to kind of divide in that way. And, and it's one of the reasons I think the Christian faith is so powerful. You know, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the great reconciler. We, we have this idea that in the church we're different and yet we're united. We're unity and diversity. It's one of the most powerful things that we've got to offer a divided world. And what's really hard is when the church, which is supposed to be this outpost of God's peace breaking into our world, is divided over issues of race and sexism and class. And, and it means that we're contradicting our very reason for being. And that's why the church has got to get its house in order on this issue of race and many others too. But as well, we do have to recognise, don't we, that there is it's not just about individuals, it's not just about individual action i mean the the reality is that that white privilege idea has propped up an awful lot of global control that has dominated a lot of countries and and i mean ultimately i suppose the expression of that would be the slave trade but there are still examples of it that are going on now chinny yeah there are all sorts of ways in which racism plays out i think it can be easy for us to think about um, the transatlantic slave trade and you get responses from people that say kind of why don't you just get over it it happened it was a long time ago let's move on but I think people fail to recognize how um, things that happened in the past um, a long time ago still affect and um, continue to have repercussions on um, people's lives today and the way that you can see that in 
uh, racism uh, in the UK is the ways in which there are disparities between what it's like to live as a black person um, in the UK and what it is like to live as a white person in the UK. Now, that's not to say that you, um, if you are white, you don't have any issues, that you are rich, um, that you have power over everyone. But what it does say is that um, the problems that you are the problems that you have are not because of your race. Now, um, I recognise that I am a black woman. I'm also Cambridge educated, middle class, relatively wealthy. And I recognise that. But um, that's the nature of racism is that when I walk into a shop, yeah. people don't assume uh, that I am middle class, Cambridge educated. They have uh, some assumptions about who I might be. And the security guards might watch me um, in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and that's because of the colour of my skin. So there are all sorts of ways from the education system to um, maternal health. So I, as a black woman, am four times more likely to die in childbirth than my white friend. Um, and that's not just a statistic, but that's something that um, I felt when I went into the hospital to give birth. I was really aware of being a black woman, being uh, was really aware that I needed to almost make myself smaller, quieter, make sure that I didn't upset anyone because of the perceptions that there are about black women or angry black women. So for me, in that context, the 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 kind of daily racism that has a long history um, in this country um, can also have an effect on me as an individual woman going into hospital to have a baby. And, and that's the problem. And the impact of racism in daily life is something that you can only grasp, Krish, when you actually hear the voice of somebody who has lived with it in the same way that you and Chinny have lived with it. No matter how much I try to insert myself into your shoes and walk a, a mile in your shoes, it, it, it's it's not going to be the same because the the fundamental assumptions of life are different, aren't they, when you have been on the receiving end of that sort of discrimination, prejudice, assumptions made about you that Chinny's talking about. You're right. No one can really understand another person's experience. But one of the wonderful things I think we're called to do is, is empathise. And so the attempt, you know, the, the desire to listen, desire to imagine yourself into another person's circumstances is a really healthy one, actually. It's one of the challenges of our divided society that people think, well, you know, we can't understand each other, so we'll just live in separate worlds. Uh, so I don't know if you remember when uh, the Brexit vote a result came in, uh, a lot of people saying, that's crazy, I didn't understand how anyone could have thought like that. Um, no one I knew uh, was voting to leave the European Union, and that's because we were living in these little silos. Mm. So empathy is an incredible bridge. It allows us to begin to try to enter another person's world and hear their experiences. And there are ways I think we can tune up or, or hone our empathetic skills and, and first one is listening. And so conversations like this are really helpful. And I'm really pleased, Paul, that, that you're you're having this conversation. And I know you've found some of the framing of the conversation difficult. And, and thank you for going through that discomfort 
so that we can have that conversation. It will help a lot of people as a result. Um, I, I think reading widely will help as well. Uh, there's some fantastic books out there. I'm hoping we're going to get to talk about Chinny's book soon. I'm a big fan of it. Um, but again, helping you to see the world through another person's eyes, and books are a great way to do that. Films, there was a fantastic uh, series called uh, Little Axe, uh, which helped us understand the experience of particularly the Windrush generation coming to the UK, how they felt about engaging with institutions like the police or education. And again, that, that empathy builds something in us and, and hopefully a desire to make a difference and to, to work for a more just and fair world. So you're right, nobody can fully understand anyone else. You know, Nobody's in my head in the same way that I am, but empathy is part of our calling and it's a great way we can build bridges. Well, let's talk a little bit about Chinny's book then, and then we'll also talk a little bit about yours as well, because Chinny, your book is called God is Not a White Man. And it's interesting for me to hear you talk about your experiences as a black woman interacting with the the institutions like the medical profession and so on not least because i know others who have had similar experiences to you simply because of the color of their skin so is there an added element for you in that title that god is not a white man that god is not a white man that is it is an element in there as well Oh, absolutely. I, I love it when people respond <laughs> to the title of my book by saying, well, and God is not a man. I was like, well, yes, that, that is in the title. Um, yeah, so my, my book challenges mainly uh, the ra racism that I think is pervasive in the church, uh, but also uh, patriarchal structures which suggest that not only is whiteness best, but white maleness is best. Um, so the impacts, therefore, of um, for me as a black woman, who is the opposite of both of those things. Um, and like Chris has spoken about that kind of hierarchy of being, if you have white men at the top, then it's white women, and then everything in between, and then black men, and then black women. Uh, so Malcolm X talks about um, the, the black women being the most dis disrespe disrespected. Zora Neale Thurston, the writer, talks about black women being the mule of the world. Um, so there's all sorts of different prejudices that, that black women experience. But I think my book is also, um, it, while it's called God is not a white man, I think the other side of it is that white men are not gods. So that challenge of um, whiteness and maleness um, in every area of society, but also the church, from depictions of what God looks like, to how Jesus um, looks, um, as well as our kind of white-centred theology uh, and practice within our churches as well. And the writing of the book comes out of your own experience of living as a Christian woman in the UK and seeing the echo of wider society's racism being pushed back to you from the church. Yeah, um, and it's about, I guess, a deep profound disappointment with the church um, because I think the church has to be, should be better. The church shouldn't be behind um, the rest of society when it comes to racial justice. The church should be the place where the rest of society looks to and thinks, wow, that place must be amazing because that you've got all of these different cultures celebrated. You've got a breaking down of divides. Um, 
But yet, in so many ways, on a Sunday morning, we are divided um, among along racial lines with white churches meeting in one place and black churches meeting in another. And I talk in the book about my experience growing up in the UK. I was born in Nigeria, but moved to the UK when I was four. And I remember arriving at uh, churches in leafy suburbs uh, in the southeast and in the home counties. And there was one particular occasion uh, turning up at the church in Hertfordshire um, as a family of five, a black family, and we turned up and the woman at the door said, oh, welcome. And what made you choose this church to come to this morning rather than the black church down the road? And I remember that um, moment. I'll never forget it because I realised even at a young age, I must have been about nine or ten, I realised that for that woman, um, we as black people, even black people who we believe are part of God's family, yeah, her family. Yeah. She saw us and thought, you should be somewhere else. Yes. And that sense of disappointment, Krish, I suppose that's also echoed in your book, isn't it? Because whistle-stop tales around the world in 10 Bible stories kind of reflects the fact that Jesus wasn't white either, was he? <laughs> That's right. Uh, maybe I, I need to help Chinny with the follow-up book. Jesus was not a white man. Um, this book, Whistle Stop Tales, was driven by the fact that as a child, when I imagined all the characters in the Bible, when I heard those Bible stories, I imagined everyone to be white. Mm. That's because every stained glass window, every cartoon, every fuzzy felt depiction of a Bible story it was always white Joseph, white Mary, white Jesus, white Moses, white everybody. And I thought, actually, that's, that's not me. You know, is the Bible for me? Uh, is, is it for brown children? Is, is it for kids that don't look like those stained glass windows? And so my, my wife and I, during lockdown, uh, as you know, we have a lot of children. We love um, talking about the Bible with our kids. We wanted to help our kids and every other child know the full range of God's love, that God's love is for absolutely everybody. And so in this little book aimed at kind of primary school children, we go around the world and we look at all the different characters. So we talk about Abraham. Uh, that's the tale of the intrepid Iraqi who had a lot to lose, or the princess, the tale of the extraordinary Egyptian who chose to go against the flow. Ruth, the tale of a giant-hearted Jordanian who went the extra mile. Naaman, the tale of the Syrian supervillain who had a dangerous secret. There's 10 stories and through it we get to travel right around the world. And maybe uh, in lockdown many of us are not going to go on an international holiday, uh, but with our imaginations we can travel around the world and we can enjoy and encourage our kids to enjoy the Bible as they do so. But of course both of you are talking in these sorts of terms and you're writing in these sorts of terms um, because of your experience of racism, because of your experience of discrimination, because of your experience of prejudice, and to highlight the fact that, that we need to be thinking about it. We need to be honest about it. So we hear the phrase in society about institutional racism. If the church is to actually provide an answer to this, is the church in the UK institutionally racist? Well, Panorama asked that question very recently, and um, the Reverend Aaron Aurora, who uh, kind of heads up an important um, 
race discrimination panel for the Church of England uh, think, thinks it is. Um, and there's stuff that the church needs to do to fix that. Uh, sometimes it, it has been limited to individuals, but there do seem to be systems and disparities that mark that we're, we're not um, fully embracing the incredible, gracious, groundbreaking, barrier-breaking love of God. Um, and you can see it in all sorts of ways you might might not have thought about. So take, for example, orphanages. That's something um, I'm crazy passionate about. That The UK church and the Western church in general currently support orphanages all around the world. And you go, well, that, that's wonderful, children getting helped. But in every country where there is an orphanage supported by a church, there are children who don't need to be in orphanages, they need to be living with their families. They're only in orphanages because of poverty. And even if both their parents have died, which is really unlikely and not true for most kids in orphanages, they all have aunties and uncles and grandparents that they could live with. And if they don't have that, and that would be unbelievably uh, unlikely, then we would never ever place a child in an orphanage in the UK. We'd always try uh, foster care or adoption. But the mindset is, we don't think these local people have the capacity to care for their own children, so we need mm. to do that for them. And that's a colonial mindset, that's a superiority complex that says, we don't trust local people to raise their kids. And I wish I could tell you that's just in certain parts of the world, but we've done it all around the world. I don't know if you've followed the story recently of these institutional schools in Canada, where, where they found 500 children's dead bodies buried in the gardens of some of these places. And those schools were set up by churches, not just the Catholic Church, other denominations were involved too, in league with the government. And the whole point of them was to get rid of Aboriginal and Indigenous cultures because they were seen to be backward. We wanted to kill the Indian, but preserve the person. And so therefore we removed kids from their families and tried to breed them out by you know, getting them adopted or put into white families. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that was hundreds of years ago. Actually, some of those schools in Canada only only ended in the 70s, 1970s. So th this this is an ongoing problem about how we look at the world as churches and it affects how we behave here. But it also affects our international development work and our support of orphanages and all sorts of places. So do we have to, Chinny, really identify and be willing to face up to the fact that there are structures and not just structures within the education system or the, within the justice system or, or within in medicine and so on, but there are structures within the church which actually, I, I hesitate to say it, perpetuate a racist. If they don't perpetuate overt racism, they perpetuate mentalities that feed into racist ideas. Absolutely they do perpetuate and that's part of the disappointment again is that in instead of being separate and different to the rest of society which might be structurally racist in some in some ways it's the church's approach um, and the church's superiority complex or the western church or the european church which um, has fed into other parts of society so i work in international development and there are so many ways in which development, um, which is a sector that is asking lots of questions about um, decolonizing and our own mindsets. But in so many ways, development is similar to the missionary movement, which is this idea that uh, Christianity um, is, is a gift 
from Europe to be bestowed on the savages of the world. So we go into all these uh, different cultures and we bring the good news of the gospel, but what we're bringing is Europeanness, uh, so-called enlightenment. Um, I think about my great-grandfather who was a priest in the Church of England, and he used to run uh, with my great-grandmother a school for Christian wives. This was in the kind of 1940s and 50s. Um, and what it would mean was that Nigerian women who were about to get married would come and stay with my great-grandparents and learn what it was to be a good Christian wife. But in essence, what that meant was they taught them how to drink tea out of China, cups, um, how to bake cakes, and all of the stuff which is really Englishness rather yeah, than Christianity. And yeah. um, so there's so many ways in which the, the colonization and um, white superiority um, has been intertwined with Christianity but, and with the Western church. And that still happens today. Right, from the it, theologians yeah. that we quote um, on, our, on Sunday mornings to the ways that we view the world as Christians. But does it really still happen today? I mean, because I, I identify with what you're saying. I remember being at Bible college in the, the late 70s, early 80s, so maybe 79, 80, and somebody coming from a missions organisation and a white man a white missionary coming and saying exactly that, saying that, that what we do is we go in and we rob people of their culture rather than bring them the reality of the gospel within their culture. And we, we impose our Englishness on them. But, you know, that, that was back in the 70s, Ginny. I mean, surely we understand it better now. Surely we don't do that sort of thing anymore. Well, we definitely understand it better and there are questions being asked. But I think in some ways it's just shifted. So if you think about... Um, uh, young white Christians going on mission trips uh, abroad and sharing images on social media um, of them, you know, with their arms around a load of uh, brown children. And sometimes I wonder whether the way that um, we view the other or the, the cultures and the communities that we're going to visit, visit um, whether we would feel comfortable if those were our own children <laughs> or our own white children and if someone was coming and taking pictures of them in that way. So I think there are lots of questions being asked about um, the shape of um, the missionary movement uh, and what contextualization of the gospel means in those contexts. Um, but it's quite slow, the change. And we can't um, pretend like it's all sold and we're totally over it. There are lots of vestiges. Think, think about the Anglican Church, right? I think it's 80 million people around the world are part of the Anglican Church. But where is the home of the Anglican Church? Who's the head of the Anglican Church? It's always going to be an Englishman, isn't it, in Lambeth Palace. And I'm a big fan of Archbishop Justin Welby. I think he's brilliant. But the structure still exists. It's a colonial structure that's still based over here. Um, th think about um, music. So I've, I've traveled by the grace of God to many different countries in Africa, uh, America, the Americas, Asia, Australasia. We're all singing the same songs. And you might think that's great, but actually it's all one-way traffic, isn't it? It's Western songs that we've marketed to the, yes. to the free market of the global church. Hillsong's very, got a lot to answer for, Chris. It's not just, well, Graham Kendrick started it. You know? <laughs> I'm not having a dig. I'm just saying we have this idea that West is best and the rest yes, just need yeah. us. Uh, there was a group called the Gospel Coalition. They had this, there's another kind of famine in the world. It's because Africans don't have enough North American theological books. I'm going, 
good grief, I think it needs to be going the other way. You know, there's loads of things that my brothers and sisters in Uganda and Kenya and South Africa have got to say to help us deal with our own challenges. So uh, there is still this mindset, West is best, and they just need to hear it from us. Can we just draw this down to a, a sort of an individual level as well, though? Because ultimately, you know, the the structures and so on, I, I get what you're saying, and I agree with you, but ultimately, for most of us, it's about how we behave and how we think and how we deal on a day-to-day -day level. And there is a quote from a certain Krish Kandaya. You may have heard of him, Chinny. And he said this, that the church has an attitude that the best way to be is colorblind. Now, this idea, Krish, that people don't see, I don't see color, I only see the person. I understand the motivation behind it, but there's something in, in me that kind of thinks that's that's denying the reality of the, the issue, but it's also the denying the reality of the person when you think and talk like that, isn't it? I agree. We, we It's well-intended. I, I want to believe the best about someone that says something like that. I, I think it's well-intended, but as a result, some really negative consequences. So, you know, you're, you're refusing to acknowledge a part of my identity, who I am. Uh, we're also refusing to recognize that there is an imbalance in the world, um, that, that people uh, from different ethnic backgrounds are treated differently uh, to, to white people. So we, 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 we're refusing to see that challenge. It's a little bit like standing outside of church one morning, your church building, and someone in a wheelchair turns up, and you say, we don't see disability here. And you go, I, I kind of know what you mean. You're trying to say something positive, that we're all the same, that, you know, that, that, that we're all equal in the eyes of God. But actually, if you don't see my disability, the chances are you haven't thought about access. You haven't thought about how um, I can get into the building, what I can see. You haven't made provision for me. You've ignored an essential part of who I am. So I, I, I'm nervous about people talking about colorblindness, however well-intentioned it might be. What do you think, Jenny? I think... I want to acknowledge that um, for well-meaning white people, sometimes um, what black people, including me, say can feel contradictory. So I really don't want you to ask me where I'm from um, in a way that makes me feel like I, you won't be satisfied until I say somewhere else, Nigeria, um, because what it's doing is pointing out that I am different or I, I don't belong here or I'm different to you I also don't don't want you to be colorblind <laughs> to me because I want you to notice that I am a black woman so I understand the, the kind of contradictory nature of that and that's because these issues are complex and I think it's partly about the choice so I don't want if I answer your question of where am I from and you're not satisfied with the answer then that is you making a decision about um, what I want to uh, to say um, I think people think that saying that they are colorblind is equal to saying that they are not racist. Um, but by saying they're colorblind, what this betrays is actually an underlying um, sense that to see someone's color as brown or black is automatically negative because black, blackness and brownness is bad or wrong in some way or different. So people choose not to see that as if it's a positive. Um, I remember speaking at a church a couple of years ago, and I was speaking on, on race, um, as I do, uh, race in the church, and in the Q&A afterwards, someone said to me, um, 
well, if I was listening to you on the phone or the radio, I wouldn't even know you were coloured. <laughs> oh, thought, dear. Thought, oh, wow. Um, I think what she meant was um, I sound British um, and therefore sounding British is uh, a good thing, <laughs> better than sounding uh, in some ways um, from somewhere else. But it's all part of that kind of sense of colour blindness and not yes. hearing and thinking that we're all the same. That's not what we're trying to say. But is what we're the... trying to say is don't discriminate against us because we look different. But is the core problem there then that that very often white people, white Christians, talking to you about you? I mean, I would say what we should be doing is recognising who each other are and recognising the different facets of each other and being interested in hearing the other's voice. So you, Chinny, as a black woman living in the UK, having come come from Nigeria as a child, lived in the UK all your life, having gone through all the things that you've gone through, if I am genuinely interested in you, I'm interested in you as a whole. I'm interested in hearing your voice as a whole. Krish, I'm interested in hearing how your experience growing up and growing up with, with a different religious perspective and then coming to faith, how that thing unpacks. And what we need to be doing is respecting the individual and valuing the individual. Does that make sense, Ginny? I would say, while you might be interested in finding out about the individual person, you have to recognise that that individual person has agency. And I might not want to talk to you Definitely, about all yes. of those things. So um, you might need to just wait until I bring it up. So I've made a conscious decision never to ask anyone where they're from, yes. um, whether that is a taxi driver or someone I meet who's got a northern accent, because I recognise the sensitivities that there might be about that person's identity, that they might not want to tell me their story. By me saying to someone with an accent, where are you from? What I'm saying is, oh, I detect that you're different in some way. Um, and it might be uh, an immigrant person who has lived in the UK for 40 years and they are ashamed about their accent. Um, and I draw attention to that. And I feel like you just need to wait for people to be ready to tell their own stories. Mm. Show them signs that you are open to, to hearing those, but don't kind of force people to, to, to share their stories before they're ready. Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, open, but not assuming you have the right to demand the story, Grish. Yeah, exactly right. Give give people the opportunity to disclose what they want to say. Um, it, it's hard though. I, I recognise that. Um, I, I'm I'm a chatty person. I like to in, engage people, and uh, I, <laughs> we reached out to our neighbours. We just moved house recently, and I said, "Oh, hi. Where, where you know? Have you lived here a long time? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Where, where did you used to live before? Uh, abroad. Oh, okay. Where, whereabouts abroad did you used to live? Um, Asia. Oh, okay. What were you doing in Asia? Work. I was like, I should have got the signal earlier. This person really didn't want to have a conversation <laughs> with me. So, you know, I, 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 I think Shilly's got wise advice for us. You know, be interested in people. Ask, ask questions that you would do to, to anybody, but allow someone the opportunity to disclose what they want to disclose seems to be a very wise and, and humble and gracious way that we should... We should do, and, and it's, it's not rocket science, is it? It's just general good manners, isn't it? How do we address this then? How, 
Because the reality is there, and we've touched on them, and I recognise we've skirted over the surface of of the experiences that you guys have lived with and of the experiences of racism that have impacted many, many people in this country, both inside and outside of the church. We kind of just, we've, we've just scratched the surface of it, recognise that. But how can we start to move forward? How can we take... What I'll be honest with you, I, were my hopes and dreams in the 70s and 80s that actually this was actually being addressed? How can we take the fact that we are still having to debate and think about racism now? I hear you, Paul, and, and in one sense, that there's, a, there's, there's real sadness there, isn't there, that, that we haven't moved further. Uh, I think we can celebrate that a lot of things have changed. Thing, things are better. Apartheid was destroyed in, in South Africa, um, you know, I, I walk down the street and it's rare that I get name calling at me like I did when I was at school. So definitely things are changing. Um, but I, I think we need a biblical realism. Um, the Bible gives us incredible hope that one day every tribe and tongue will gather around the throne of Jesus and praise him. And it won't just be one racial group or one ethnic minority every nation honoring Jesus and we have incredible hope to keep going but on the other hand we need realism the Bible is very clear about the human heart basically being the same throughout the generations and we're always going to have to fight our you know self-centeredness our greed our envy our, our jealousy all of those elements are still going to be there because you know that that's just part of human nature and so holding that hope and that realism together is for me the rocket fuel. You know, I, I can keep going, having a go. We can, you know, try and write books, try to persuade people. Uh, we can reach out, we can demonstrate a different kind of reality in our families and in our churches. But I'm also recognizing I'm never fully going to get there because only the coming kingdom of God can bring that in. So my job, as best I can, is to give people a trailer. Do you remember going to the movies? I, I miss going to the movies, but I used to love the trailers. They were my favorite bits because you'd get the best bits of the next movie to come. And I feel like that's what we're supposed to be doing. We can't, I, you know, I'd love to say we could change everything, but I think the best we can do is to give people a little taste of what's to come. And that can happen in a simple little way on a radio program where three people can have a conversation that's robust and frank and honest, but it can happen in our homes, it can happen in our churches. We begin to see the kingdom of God breaking through little by little. One day the fullness will come, one day Jesus will come again, and we want as many people in on that as possible. What's your take on it, Jenny? It's really hard to go from the really deep, um, complex uh Things that we've been talking about um, to the practical. I think we have to think about the practical steps that people can take, and that's often the advice that people are looking for on these issues: is what what can I do? So I think uh, one of the first things that people can do is read black theology, um, diversify um, the books that you read, um, think about the Bible through different lenses, uh, buy whistle-stop tales so you can understand that the 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 Bible is full of colour and lots of people from lots of different places. It's not centred around England or the UK. Um, 
I think we can diversify our church and leadership teams. I think that's really important, not just because of political correctness or quotas, but because having diverse teams means that you're better able to see the world differently and better able to um, engage uh, not just your church community, but your wider community. And I think there are practical things that we can do about structural racism, which is uh, to hold our governments uh, to account when they fail on these issues, when they haven't done enough. I think there's also a fundamental reframing of the conversation that we need. I think about what you said, which was around, you know, why haven't we moved further um, considering all the fights that were fought in the 70s or in the 60s on this issue? And I think, um, I don't think people are wholly convinced of the need for change. I don't think people really um, see everyone else as made in God's image. Um, and I think partly one of the things that we need to do is reframe the conversation and actually talk about um, the flourishing of all of us. So the kingdom of God and what that looks like. I think it's better for all of us if black people aren't killed in the street or if black women don't die at disproportionate rates um, when giving birth. I think it's better for all of us um, if uh, society is more equal, if the church is more equal. So how can we think a bit selfishly, maybe, about why... Um, uh, racial injustice is bad for all of us and do something about it. Well, Cheney's book is called God is Not a White Man. It is published by our friends at Hodder. Chris's book is called Whistle Stop Tales Around the World in 10 Bible Stories, also published by Hodder. Both books are available online and in good bookshops and so on. I suppose I've always considered myself to be instinctively anti-racist. I grew up in a multicultural city in the 70s. I had as many friends who were people of colour as were white. There always seemed to me the most natural thing in the world to respect and have interest in the difference that there was between us and to avoid the division that could come between us if some people were allowed to make particular issue of that difference. So for me, it is really hard to understand why we are still having to have this battle with racism. And yet the truth is, all too often, it's because we who are white, who have privilege, don't take time to ask, don't take time to think, don't take time to listen. That was brought home to me because despite my instinctive anti-racist attitude despite the fact that my granddaughter is brown it never occurred to me that those statues and those street names linked to the slave trade would still be offensive how did i not see that it's because i assumed i was not racist rather than listened to whether racism was still impacting my perspective You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. If we're going to take anything away from this conversation, maybe it is that all of us need to consider how racism and racist attitudes in our nation, in our society and in our church influence our perspective and ensure that what we actually give out is the heart of God and what actually forms our thinking is the understanding that God is not a white man and that his attitude towards us is based on our response to his love and his grace.
Krish Kandaya, Chinny McDonald, my guest today for this week's Life Issues. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Chinny. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. Don't forget you can hear this as a podcast through the UCB Player app. And why not join me next week for another Life Issues? Good night. <laughs>